Welcome to Common Ground Church Rondebosch, a community based in Cape Town, South Africa, who believe that if Jesus is who he says he is, that changes everything. Our sermon podcast aims to unpack this reality, rooted in scripture and dependent on God's spirit. The book of Galatians is a gospel clarifying letter that unpacks the richness and completeness of what Jesus did for us in his death and resurrection. It clearly defines what the gospel is and is not for its readers. It helps us realize the depths of God's love for us in a life of relationship and obedience to Him in His power. Please continue listening for today's message. Yeah, thank you, Ryan. Just want to uh, extend my thanks to uh, to this community for the way that you've opened up your arms and uh, loved us as a family. Each member of of, uh, my family would have their own testimony to share of how they felt loved and welcomed uh, in this community. I also just want to thank uh, personally the staff team and the elders for the way that they've received and encouraged me. And then um, wanted to particularly thank Ryan and Rigby uh, for the way that they have cared for me in the season. A couple of weeks ago, I was listening to a Tim Keller sermon uh, on uh, Christian friendship and Keller Uh, gave uh, four uh, kind of signs of Christian friendship, being uh, consistency, care, candor, and counsel. And uh, Ryan and Rigby have really played that role in my life. So I'm really grateful to God for this church, uh, staff team, eldership, and for those men in my life. Uh, We are in the midst of a series in the book of Galatians that finds us at Galatians chapter 3. So if you've got your Bibles, if you want to turn to Galatians chapter 3, this actually marks uh, a moment where we move from part 1, which was where we're looking at gospel clarity, to part 2, which looks at gospel family. And in part 1 of the series... Uh, We've seen that Paul has been contending for the gospel. We've seen that the gospel is something that Paul received from God and it was something that radically transformed his life. He received it from God, so it was quite independent of the leadership in Jerusalem, but despite the fact that it was independent of the leaders in Jerusalem, it was not different from the gospel that they were preaching. We, we get to see that the gospel is for all, Jew and Gentile, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And what we've discovered as we've talked through uh, Galatians 1 and 2 is despite the fact that the Galatian church have heard this glorious gospel, have received this glorious gospel, have enjoyed the fruits of this glorious gospel, nevertheless, they have allowed others to come in and confuse them, others to come in to derail them and deflect them. They've allowed others to come in who have required them to obey the Mosaic law, the Torah, in order to be accepted as God's people. And Paul couldn't be more concerned about this. And we pick up his concern again in chapter three and verse one. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this, did you receive the spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the spirit, are you now trying to be perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supply the spirit to you and work miracles among you do so by works of the law 
or by hearing with faith. Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseen that God would justify the Gentiles by faith. Preach the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Let's pray. Lord, we pray as we come to your word this morning, we pray, Lord, that you would be with us. We pray, Lord, that you would open the eyes of our hearts in order that we might know you better and the plans and purposes that you have got for us. We pray, Holy Spirit of God, that you would be with us in a wonderful and powerful way this morning. And all God's people said... I want to look at this passage under three headings, a disturbing departure, a shared experience, and a flawed argument. A disturbing departure, a shared experience, and a flawed argument. Let's begin with a disturbing departure. In our opening verse here in Galatians uh, chapter three and verse one, Paul could not be more concerned. He begins with, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Why is, so, why is Paul so combative here? Why is he so in their face? Why is he so confrontational? Well, he knows what at stake here isn't some minor issue, but something that cuts to the very heart of the gospel, which is why Paul continues. It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Paul reminds the church that when he came to them, he preached Jesus Christ and him crucified. His public message was that we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the consequence of that mistake is death. Either we pay the penalty or Christ pays the penalty on our behalf. The good news that Paul proclaimed to the church in Galatia was that Jesus took his sin, uh, our sin upon himself. He became our sin bearer. He died so that we could be ransomed, healed, restored, forgiven. At the heart of the Christian message isn't a call to morally outperform others. If you visit in here, Christianity isn't a pull up your socks and try harder religion, if, if only you can do better. No, at the heart of the Christian message is believing and trusting what Jesus Christ has done for us and what he has won for us. Paul makes it clear that in order for us to be saved and rescued, it required nothing less than Christ's death on the cross. Christ's death on the cross wasn't an accident. It wasn't a unfortunate mistake. It wasn't a bad ending to an otherwise exceptional life. No, these were part of God's divine plan. Jesus knew what was going down. He knew how the story would end. On the very night that he was betrayed, he, he took bread and wine, symbolizing his very life, and then publicly demonstrated to his first disciples that his body was gonna be broken, that his blood was gonna be shed. He knew what was gonna happen, but he didn't sidestep it. Rather, in love, he embraced it, which is why Paul declares two verses earlier, the life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. 
Paul knew that he wasn't dealing here with kind of procedural accuracy or petty theological uh, disagreements. No, Paul knew that what he was dealing with here in the Galatian church was deeply, deeply personal. Paul knew that what was at stake here was the fact that Jesus Christ had died for him, that his body had been broken, that his blood had been shed. It was deeply personal. He knew that Christ needed to die in order for us to be saved and rescued. Back in 2004, my wife Anna and I were uh, leaders of a student life group. And uh, one of the big things that happened in 2004 was that Mel Gibson brought out his movie, The Passion of the Christ. And if you've seen that movie, you'll know that it is a movie uh, that is based on the crucifixion uh, of Christ. And at the time, a number of people in our life group uh, watched that movie. And one of the people that had watched the movie, uh, Chembi, was deeply impacted. We were all deeply impacted, but Chembi was particularly impacted by watching this movie. In fact, she was so moved in watching the movie that she immediately phoned her brother and really earnestly pleaded with him that he might watch this movie. Chembi's brother was uh, not a Christ follower and, and she wanted him to watch the movie just to see what Christ had done. And uh, her brother was living in Vintuk at the time, so tried to find a movie house where he could go watch the movie, but The Passion of the Christ wasn't shown in Vintuk, but he was a very resourceful guy. And he got hold of a bootleg DVD of The Passion of the Christ. He got hold of an illegal copy of the movie to watch it uh, because his sister in Cape Town wanted him to see it. And the moment he had finished watching The Passion of the Christ, he phoned Chembi. And he didn't even say, hello, Chembi. He just said, did that happen? And Chembi was telling us a story in life group. And we're like, Chembi, like, what did you say to him? She said, Steve, I shouted down the phone. It happened for you. It happened for you. And Chembi is exactly on theological point because she's right, Jesus' body is broken for you. His blood is shed for you. It's not just that Jesus kind of generically dies for everybody. No, 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 it's personal. He died for you because he took your sin, right? Because he took your sin, you can be sure that he died for you. His body was broken for you. His blood was shed for you. That's why Paul concludes uh, chapter two by saying, I do not set aside the grace of God for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. Friends, can you see why, why Paul's uh, pulse rate is so high in this book? Because he knows that if you try and add to the gospel, what you are actually doing is nullifying the cross work of Christ. Okay, can you see why this is such a disturbing departure for the Galatians? Can you see how foolish this is? Can you see how bewitching it is to add the Torah, to add the law, to add anything as a means of gaining right access before God is to nullify Christ's work on the cross? To propose any other legitimate way of gaining right standing with God is to render Christ's death on the cross unnecessary. Firstly, a disturbing departure. Secondly, a shared experience. Now, Paul being the great teacher that he is, doesn't just set alarm bells going off. He doesn't want you just to be aware of what he's concerned about. He also wants to persuade you around what is right. And he does that here in the first five verses of Galatians chapter three, 
by highlighting the role of the Holy Spirit in the lives of individuals and in indeed uh, the corporate church. We see this in verses two, three, and five. Notice verse two. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Notice verse three. Are you so foolish, having begun with the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Or notice verse five. Does he who supply the Spirit to you and work miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Can you see what Paul is doing here? Paul is building an argument. And he is building an argument off the back of a common shared experience. He's wanting to build a bridge with his audience and he does that by reminding them of this common shared experience. This would be like writing to South Africans and saying, hey, do you remember the Springboks winning the World Cup in 2019 and see a Khaleesi lifting the trophy? And we go like, yeah, of course we remember. Or if you were writing to some UCT res students and in 2021 and, and, and you wrote to them and say, hey, do you remember the fire? Do you, do you remember the day on the uh, 8th of April when you had to be evacuated? It's like, yeah, we absolutely remember that. Or it would be like writing to the Rondebosch first team cricket of the last decade and asking them, do you remember beating bishops? And all, all 10 years would say, we, we, absolutely, we absolutely remember that. Personal powerful experiences leave a lasting impression. Personal powerful experiences leave a lasting impression. Paul knew that the recipients of his letter had had a personal powerful experience and the personal powerful experience had left a lasting impression. And the personal powerful experience was with none other than God the Holy Spirit. This experience was so normative and all-encompassing that Paul could use it as the very basis for his argument. When this piece of papyrus first rocked up amongst the churches, and it was read to them and it talks about the supply of the Spirit and when you receive the Spirit, people weren't looking at each other, Holy Spirit, what is he talking about? We don't even, what, what's he on about here? We've got no idea. No, 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 they absolutely knew what he was on about because they had experienced it themselves. Christ followers believe in a triune God, one God, three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. When Paul first came to Galatia to preach, he preached about the fact that the Father sent the Son to die on the cross in order to save and rescue them. But he also preached the fact that Jesus rose from the dead and that he ascended to the right hand of the Father and that the Father sent the Spirit to help us, to guide us, to strengthen us and empower us. The Holy Spirit is nothing less than the third person of the Trinity. God himself, God's empowering presence. He came to help us, he came to support us, he came to empower us. The very things Jesus promised he would do. In John 14, when Jesus is trying to comfort his disciples, after he has just informed them that he's gonna depart, he gives them this amazing promise. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father 
and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Jesus says that he is gonna go to the Father and he is gonna ask the Father to send the Spirit who will help you forever and will adequately replace me in terms of your actual experience of God. Now, I want you to see two important things about this promise. Firstly, I want you to notice that Jesus promises to send a person. Notice Jesus says he's going to send another helper. In other words, a person just like Jesus to be with us and help us. Jesus isn't sending a force or a magnetic field or a mystical power. No, he's sending a person, the person of the Holy Spirit, which is why Paul can write in 2 Corinthians 13, 14, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. You, you can't hang out with an electric current, but you can with a person. And Jesus is offering us here is nothing less than the third person of the Trinity, the empowering presence of God. It is truly staggering. The second thing I want you to notice is that Jesus promises that the role of the Holy Spirit is to help us in powerful ways. You may be here today and exploring Christianity and when you hear stories about the fact that Jesus Christ died on the cross in order to save and rescue you because he loves you, you're like, man, I really wanna respond to that. That's amazing, it's incredible that he's done that for me. But actually you think to yourself, you know, I'd love to do it, but actually I won't do it and the reason I won't do it is because I just don't think I can keep it up. Like, I just, like if I respond, I just don't think I keep like the, the Christian gig going. I just think at some point like the wheels will come off and I'll just end up disappointing myself and others. And if that describes your situation this morning, I wanna to say to you that I've got some bad news and some good news. The bad news is you're right. Left to yourself, you're not gonna be able to keep this Christian gig going over the long term. The truth is, none of us can. And actually, the sooner you realize that, the better. But the good news is that God knows that, which is why he wants to send somebody to help us. Here again, the words of Jesus, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Jesus is promising to send a helper. The helper is none other than God himself. This is such a massive epoch changing event that it is an appropriate substitute for Jesus. Like who can replace Jesus? Only another person of the Trinity, right? Which is what Jesus is promising. I'm gonna send another person of the Trinity, God himself to come alongside you to help you. The word that Jesus uses here in John 14 to describe the Holy Spirit is parakletos. It can be translated counselor, helper. It literally means to draw alongside and help. Jesus is promising that the Holy Spirit will come to us and that he will draw alongside us and help us. This is an incredible thing. And friends, it is obvious that if we are to be helped, we will have to experience help, right? Doesn't help if you're struggling with your mass problem for somebody to phone you and say, yeah, I can do the problems and I can help you. Just imagine me helping you. It's like, no, I don't wanna imagine it. I need actual help, which is what the disciples needed at the time. 
which is why Don Carson, commenting on these verses, rightly notes that the spirit is to be experienced, otherwise the promise of relief from the sense of abandonment is empty. Friends, the Holy Spirit is meant to be experienced. Jesus promises not to leave us as orphans. We're not just left to fend for ourselves. No, he's promised to send the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit is to be experienced. The Galatian church experienced the Holy Spirit. Now you may be saying, well, what is this experience like? Well, Paul doesn't describe it here in Galatians 3, but we can, reflecting on what Paul does write here, make four observations that I think are relevant. Firstly, to experience the Holy Spirit is to experience something that is personal which is part of the reason why I think Paul doesn't describe it, because he doesn't want you to have his experience, he wants you to have your experience. God's got a personal experience for you, and sometimes hearing about somebody else's experience can kind of think, oh, well, I can't relate to that. Trust that God himself knows how to relate to you. It is personal. Secondly, it's memorable. We've seen this already. Paul is writing with the presupposition that these guys will absolutely know what he's talking about. This is a memorable thing. If you think, has this, have I received the Spirit? Well, if, if you're not sure, it, it probably hasn't happened because it's something that ought to be memorable. Thirdly, it is meaningful. It is deeply meaningful because I believe in its essence to encounter the Holy Spirit is to encounter the very love of God. Paul writes in Romans 5 that God will pour out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. In Ephesians 3, where Paul is praying for the church in Ephesus, that they would know how high and wide and long and high is the love of God. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, his very next verse says, he prays that we'd be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. So I believe to encounter the Holy Spirit is to encounter the love of God. An old Puritan tells a story of a father walking along the beach with his son. And in scene one, the father turns to the son and says, son, I love you. And he continues walking. In the second scene, it is the same father and the same son walking on the same beach. And as they're walking along the beach, the father turns to the son, he picks up the son, and he holds him tight, and I'll rephrase that for 2023, he goes, I love you, I love you, I love you, I love you to the moon and back. And the Puritan asks the question, is the son loved more in scene one or scene two? And the Puritan answers, the son is equally loved in both scenes. The father's love for the son is true. The difference between scene one and scene two is the son's experience of the love of the father. Friends, if we are to work out whether God loves us, we are not to think about our experience with the Holy Spirit, but we are to think about the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we're still sinners, Christ died for us. But in encountering the Spirit, we get to experience the love of the Father. The Father gets to pick us up in his arms and tell us that he loves us to the moon and back. So firstly, it's personal. Secondly, it's memorable. Thirdly, it's meaningful. Fourthly, it is 
spirit empowering. It actually strengthens you spiritually. It empowers you to do things that you couldn't do simply on your own strength. So the Christians in Galatia knew the wonder of having their sins forgiven through the finished work of Christ on the cross, but they also knew the wonder of the Holy Spirit personally helping them and empowering them to live the Christian life. And friends, here's the kicker. The kicker for Paul was this experience of the Spirit was separate and apart from the law. Torah obedience, works righteousness didn't usher the work of the Spirit, but believing in God did. In verse two, Paul reminds them that they didn't receive the Spirit through law keeping, but by believing God. In verse three, Paul reminds them that their first steps in their Christian walk were Spirit-empowered steps. Having started with the Spirit, he tells them that they shouldn't now move on to human effort. And in verse five, he reminds them that their corporate experience of the supply of the Spirit and the working of miracles among them didn't come by works of the law, but rather through believing God. And friends, in these first five verses, Paul makes it clear, their receiving of the Spirit had nothing to do with law keeping. And then secondly, there is a tension point between the Mosaic law, between the Torah and the Spirit. And this tension point is gonna be unpacked in the rest of the letter as we walk through that over the next coming weeks. But let me quickly thread the needle. Paul is gonna make the point that the law was given by God to point out error in order to lead us to Christ. The role of the law was never there to empower us to live righteously. The Spirit, however, is more powerful than the law because the Spirit doesn't just point out where we are doing something wrong. The Spirit comes alongside us and empowers us to do what is right. The Spirit replaces the law in the new covenant as the primary change agent. And we see that most clearly in Romans 7 verse six. But now we are released from the law having died to that which once held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Friends, this is massive. The work of the Spirit isn't uh, peripheral, but it is central. And as we teach our way through the rest of this book, we're gonna discover Paul using phrases like walk by the Spirit, keep in step with the Spirit, live by the Spirit, bear fruit of the Spirit. The work of the Spirit, friends, is foundational, It is normative and it is essential. So firstly, a disturbing departure. Secondly, a shared experience. And finally, a flawed argument. Having highlighted his concern and then reminded them of the work of the Spirit amongst them, Paul then finally turns his attention to the Judaizers and their actual argument. Now, what was their actual argument like? Well, the Judaizers would have followed up with a Gentile person who had come to faith in Christ and gone, hey man, I'm so excited to see that you've accepted Jesus as the Messiah. Is that right? Have you done that? And it's like, yeah, it's amazing. Like last week I accepted Jesus as my Messiah. And they go, wonderful. Did you know that Jesus is Jewish? In fact, he is the Jewish Messiah. Did you know that? And it's like, wow, I think I knew that, but I'm not sure. I guess so, great. That's wonderful. And they'll go, well, it's great that you've accepted Jesus as the Jewish Messiah. And in many respects, you guys are kind of like Johnny come lately because although this is all new, to you, 
Actually, God has been working with his people for centuries. And I'm, I'm glad you've joined, but we just need to take you back a bit because God's been at work. And the way that God's been at work is he chose a people, a nation out of all the nations of the earth to be his uh, special possessions. He's chosen Israel. And one of the ways that he expressed his, his, his love and care for Israel was he taught them his ways. He gave him uh, the law. He gave it to Moses. There was like a lot of pyrotechnics around that. It was a really big deal. And he gave them the law. And, and the way that we honor God and the way that we follow him and the way that we get in right standing with God is by following the Mosaic law and embracing the Jewish identity markers. Now, please don't judge me here, but the first ball's kind of high because the first thing you need to do is you need to get circumcised. But that's the deal here. You've like Jesus, Jewish Messiah. We're gonna go back to Moses, the giving of the law. He's Jewish. You need to obey this law in order to be in right standing with God and please him. That's the argument. And Paul steps in here in Galatians to say, okay, cool, you wanna play that game. Is, is that the game we play now? I just wanna be clear. So like, if you really wanna belong and you really wanna be in, Jesus isn't enough. You've gotta draw back and you've gotta to go to Moses. We have gotta go back to Moses to work out how you get right with God and who belongs. And you're saying that the way we get right with God is by obeying the Torah. That's the way we get in because like Jesus is Jewish, but he's like, new kid on the block, we're now gonna bounce back to Moses and we're gonna find his law thing and you've gotta embrace this whole gig if you really wanna belong and you really wanna be a part of it. Is that the game? And they're going, that's the game. And he's going, cool, I'm glad you're playing that game because if we're going for the longevity card, then let's please not stop at Moses. Let's not stop at the law, but let's go all the way back to Abraham. Let's go to the father of the faith and then we're gonna work out how you belong and who is included. You remember Abraham, right? Father Abraham had many sons, many sons had Father Abraham, I am one. Jeff, you're under pressure, yeah. There's not just one singer in the house. So we're gonna, we're gonna go back to Abraham and then we're gonna check out what the gig is. And what Paul does here in Galatians 3 is that he quotes Genesis 15 to work out how we get right with God, and then he quotes Genesis 12 in order to work out who is included. Genesis 15 to how do we get right with God, Genesis 12 to work out who is included. Genesis 15 verse six says, Abraham believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. Abraham was not justified on the basis of his obedience to God. He was declared to be right before God when he believed God's promises. His righteousness came not by working for God, but by believing in God. So righteousness comes through faith in God, not by works of the law. And then he quotes Genesis 12 to work out the scope of this gig. In Genesis 12, God promises that through Abraham, all the nations will be blessed. So we find that the mechanism of being included is faith and the scope is all nations. Paul says to these guys, okay, you wanna play the heritage card, you wanna play the longevity card, let's do that. But that doesn't take us to Moses, we need to go all the way back to Abraham and when we get back to Abraham, we discover that you get right with God on the basis of faith and the scope isn't just Israel, it is in fact all nations. What Paul does here is he is like 
a master judo wrestler. He takes their very strongest argument and he turns it against them to pin them to the ground. The very thing that they are using to disprove his gospel is the very thing he uses to show that it is genuinely authentic and from God. It is by faith for all peoples. So firstly, we see a disturbing departure. Secondly, we see a shared experience. And then finally here, we see a flawed argument. Before closing this morning, I wanna suggest two applications for us as a community. Application number one is that the gospel should always be our true north. What is clear from this section of Galatians and indeed the whole letter up to this point is that the gospel wasn't something, uh, something that Paul simply believed, but it was something through which he evaluated everything else. C.S. Lewis once wrote, he said, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it, I see everything else. And that was true for Paul when it came to the gospel. The gospel wasn't something that Paul simply believed, but it was the lens through which he viewed and evaluated everything else. Tim Keller puts it like this, The gospel is not just the ABC of Christianity, it is the A to Z. The gospel is not just the minimum required doctrine necessary to enter the kingdom, but it is the way we make all progress in the kingdom. It is the solution to each problem, the key to each closed door, the power through every barrier. Christians, can I ask you this morning, what is your true north? What is your guiding light? What is the way you make decisions? What is the way that you evaluate everything that is coming at you? Do you evaluate it on the basis of the gospel? Or is it on the basis of some political preference or ideology? Do you view things in light of the gospel or in light of your family traditions? Do you evaluate things on the basis of the gospel or rather your desire to be successful, or your desire to fit in, or your desire to find romance? What is the primary way that you evaluate and make decisions? Paul is urging us here that if we make anything other than the gospel the lens through which we view and evaluate things, if we make anything other than the gospel the thing that is central and foundational to our lives, we are placing ourselves in a vulnerable situation. Paul firmly but lovingly wants to make sure that each of us has centered our lives and grounded it on the gospel and that we aren't drifting off with every passing fad. So firstly, I believe there's a call to make the gospel our true north. But secondly, I believe that there's a call here to all of us that we should be looking to grow in our relationship with the Holy Spirit. And Ash this morning during worship, shared a a wonderful word about that, that we would be open to God. We would be open to the Holy Spirit working within us. Now, I know that in a church this size, there would be people who've got very different experiences when it comes to the person and work of the Holy Spirit. For some of you, when you arrived today, you thought that the Trinity was Father, Son, and, and Holy Scripture, and you're going like, Holy Spirit, what's that? We, I, I haven't heard about this yet. Well, what's this all about? 
And that's exactly how a group of guys responded to Paul in Acts 19 on the, on the way to Ephesus. Paul bumps into these dudes and says, hey, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they answer, no, we haven't even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And this wasn't a problem for Paul and it's not a problem for us. It wasn't like, oh, the, these guys are insincere or unauthentic, not at all. There was just a bit of teaching that they hadn't heard. And so Paul just teaches them about the Holy Spirit and then he prays for them and they actually come into their own experience of the Holy Spirit. And we'd really love to do that for you today. We'd really love to pray for anybody who would like to be prayed for to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And this isn't just like a, a one-off shot in the dark. No, as, as a community, we, we believe in the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. And we want there to be multiple occasions where people can receive prayer. Next term, we're gonna be holding an insights evening about the Holy Spirit where there'll be more teaching, there'll be opportunity to ask questions, there'll be another opportunity for prayer. If this is all new to you, uh, you've got something wonderful to look forward to. God himself wants to come alongside you and meet with you. But for others of you here today, you are familiar with the person and work of the Spirit. But if you're honest, the last few years in your life have really taken a toll on you. You know what it is to be filled with the Spirit, but you know what it is for the wheels to fall off and really to get to an end of yourself. You know what it is to hit the wall. And as a community, we would love to pray Ephesians 3.19 over you, that you would be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God, that you would know the reality of God himself coming and strengthening you and empowering you and helping you to truly follow him. For others of you here, the issue isn't a sense of lack of spiritual power, but rather the reality of sin winning the day. For some of you, you're battling sin and you kind of feel like you're the only person that's got less power than ESCOM at the moment. <laughs> it's not like a battle anymore. It's just like a surrender flag. And you're just at the end of yourself. I've got good news. God wants to help you. You're not meant to wrestle this thing yourself. God wants to come and help you. He actually wants to not just empower you to battle this, but he actually wants to put you into community that can battle with you in helping deal with this stuff. This was never a solo gig. Not you alone and not even just you and the Holy Spirit. It's, it's you and the Holy Spirit and community filled with the Spirit helping you to win the battles that you can't win by yourself. And so flying the white flag of surrender is good when we're not surrendering to the devil, but when we're surrendering to the Lord and we say, Lord, I can't do this on my own strength. I can't fight this battle. I need you to come and empower me and help me. For others, you've been burnt in a hyper-charismatic situation, however you wanna define that, and you're like, please, can, can, can we just get back to the Bible? And can I lovingly and respectfully say we, we, we are in the Bible. And the Bible is pointing us to the person and work of the Holy Spirit. And God wants to meet with you. The best way to correct misuse isn't with disuse, but rather proper use. 
Jesus says in Luke 11, which of your fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Let's pray together. Lord, we wanna thank you so much that during worship, you invited us to open ourselves up to you and the work that you're wanting to do in us. And Lord, I thank you so much that you do not leave us as orphans. You don't just leave us to our own devices, but that you promise to send a helper to draw alongside and help us. And Lord, as we come to a moment of prayer now, Lord, I pray for every person in this room, wherever they are in their spiritual journey, Lord, I pray that you would meet with them and that you would help them and that you would strengthen them and that you would empower them. I ask this in your name and for your glory. Amen.